Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. Before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Voodoo Justice Magic, final production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and with the co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse. Us and monthly co host Kat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in contributing to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there if it's working. Now, without further ado, our guest for today, I am going to let them introduce themselves because I'm pretty sure I am going to mess up their names. So you see these guys. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so my name is Artemis. And my name is Bhairav. And uh, yeah, we're the stewards of a small off-grid ashram in northern BC, Canada. Um, and the main facilitators and uh, creators of the Anatara um, Yoga School. Together, we're also authors, actually, of the power of Tantra meditation and uh, yeah, we also have a podcast as well. Awesome. So, what is Tantra meditation? I mean, when I think of Tantra, I'm thinking Kama Sutra, I'm thinking orgies, crazy positions, um, hitting a point of orgasm where my mind is just completely shattered and fractured and goes into the ethereal stratosphere. Is that what it is? I mean, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, it's possible that it's included. Yeah, that's included. It's in that. just the part that's really emphasized in the West. Mm-hmm. So, what else is there to it? Like, how did you guys get into it? How do you teach it? And what does it involve? Um, I guess first, I'd like to just uh, yeah. So, what you're imagining around tantra makes a lot of sense as to why you would think that and you're not alone in thinking that um this is the main perspective that we have in the west on what tantra is and you know actually it also is somewhat in india as well except maybe also including some black magic in there um so this kind of happened because it is a part of tantra it's a part, a tantra is a spiritual path as well as uh, a belief system, a philosophy, um, texts. Um, and so because sex was included in the spiritual path, I think when it came to the West, we just focused in on that part because coming from mm. Christian mainly upbringing, we didn't have that in our spirituality. And so this just became, yeah hyper focused on and and and, and really grew up Mm -hmm. and the the way that tantra sees the world and spirituality is that uh tantra and tantrics see everything spiritual not just maybe along the judeo-christian thing Mm -hmm. which is god that godhead figure and everything else is kind of sin um or Maybe even in uh, Vedanta, in Advaita Vedanta, where you have just the transcendent, which is spiritual. Tantra is saying that if the transcendent is spiritual, 
then also the imminent must be spiritual as well. Every aspect of our lives must, must be spiritual um, in their own context, however, in their own context. So in traditional Tantra, which is what we teach, really the sexuality part of it has a very small part. It's a very small aspect, like um, as much as it is in maybe a person's life, maybe 5, 10 15%, depending on how sexual a person is. Mm. And so Tantra doesn't deny the sexuality that it should be put aside and that it can't uh, bring us towards a place of enlightenment, as you say, cosmic orgasm right. or something. Um, but uh, but it encompasses the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so what are some of the aspects of Tantra that are not sexual? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I mean, if we were to just simply look at the fact that Tantra encompasses everything. Tantra tells us that you can become enlightened um, having your morning coffee. You can become enlightened uh, having sex, doing yoga, meditation, noticing your breath, not noticing your breath. Basically, what they're saying is there isn't just one path that we all need to kind of form ourselves to, one kind of um yeah structure that we need to all become and perfect ourselves and purify ourselves in order to be good enough to have uh freedom and so what 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 parts of tantra don't involve sex basically you know the it, it encompasses everything so there's not yeah for to say that like sex is just part of life any anything in life can be a part of tantra and so therefore yeah you know sex is is just one small part of the whole whole thing then of course we're working with tantra in a more traditional way and have been given teachings and practices from our tantric teacher in in india um and so we're working with some very traditional tools um for the most part. We also try to bring in a more modern aspect as well, uh, but we we are also living quite, we are very much by the teachings of, of our, our teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in this way, the, the scope of traditional Tantra often involves mantra, work with mantras, um, Sanskrit, sacred Sanskrit syllables that have been empowered by our teacher, by our guru, uh, kind of like a little energy burst that that we can use and grow that that little energy from a seed into a tree. We use other things like sacred geometry. So um, they're called in India as yantras. Um, even I see this wall hanging behind you. Oh, you the have, Buddha? <laughs> you have the Buddha, but around, that, but around that you have the lotus. Mm-hmm. You have the lotus petals and it might even be a Sri Yantra. Anyway, this would be considered a yantra, although yantras generally in India um, aren't quite as um, abstract. They're usually very simple. Sacred geometry course. There you go. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we also do a lot of uh, fire ceremonies. So yagnas. So we sit around a fire and we offer. And in um, in uh, in the Vedic tradition of India, so more the common Hindu. People, they would call this Homa, but in Homa, 
usually um, in India, it's only the priests that can do these ceremonies. So Tantra is saying as well, we don't need to be a priest to be able to go into these ceremonies, to do these rituals. We can do them ourselves. We are as much a human as they are, and we are endowed with the divine within. As much as they are. As much as they are. That is awesome. Um, (laughs) So what is the origin of Tantra? Like, How did it get started? Like, like, Did a particular uh, yogi or guru start it, and then it got passed down from there through a lineage? A history that isn't very well documented. So even if you were to go into the world of academia, there's conflicting beliefs around how Tantra really came to be. Um, Some of the, but I think for myself at least, a lot of the stories have a commonality, which is that it blossomed out of old traditions um, in because of a need for spirituality to come to the common people, to be more accessible, to be less of this lofty, um, yeah, transcendental, perfected, holier-than-thou kind of thing, and to come down to earth and to be something more accessible. Um, so it, I think, largely, at least we can see it starting, the Tantra uh, started as texts. So just written texts with a particular philosophical belief that, as I say, kind of was more inviting, mm-hmm. less um, restricted to one class or caste of people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's quite a common thing that's happening, uh, that has happened in India over the millennia. Um, you have different traditions rising up and then other traditions coming out of that and adding on to it, depending on their cultural background. Like um, like the old Buddhism, the Theravada Buddhism, mm-hmm. um, Vedanta kind of blo- yoga blossomed out of that old Buddhism. So the traditional style of Patanjali yoga, uh, before the asanas and all of this, more the meditative style of yoga, blossomed out of that. And then what blossomed out of yoga, but also created around the same time. So India is also a big country, especially. In the old days, it was a very big country. Mm-hmm. And what blossomed out of there was the Advaita Vedanta path. Mm-hmm. But it was it was restricted. Um, and it's different these days. But in the in the old days, it was restricted to a monastic style of of practice. So the average the average person could do could do some things, but not a lot. And then Tantra kind of blossomed out of there as a path for the householder an esoteric path for the householder, really. It could be defined as an esoteric spiritual path for the householder that's uh, powerful and strong and very efficient because we're we're working not just with maybe some very, very subtle energies of the divine of, of, um, the, of the cosmos, but we're working with um, our very own chi and our very own prana, which is the involvement then when we start to talk about chakras, when we start to talk about kundalini, and um, when we start to talk about spirits and guides and um, and the spirits of the land and of our ancestors and of the gurus and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Is there any difference between tantric yoga and kundalini yoga? One of my, my first introductions to meditation and spiritual practice was kundalini yoga. Yeah, uh, Kundalini Yoga is has kind of been um, 
oh, what's the word? Uh, like turned turned into something that can be bought and sold. Unfortunately, um, it's it's become something that's exclusive to uh, Yogi Bhajan, or it, not? It isn't really, but at least the world kind of perceives it that way and perceives. Uh, associates kundalini yoga with him and with his particular style of kundalini yoga. I think he even trademarked the term kundalini. I think he might have. And he tried to trademark the word uh, yoga, right. but he couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so kundalini yoga is, uh, we also teach kundalini yoga, but not in the yogi bhajan way. And um, some scholars even say that uh, yoga originally existed, like started in Tantra as a way to awaken our chakras and get the energy system moving. All of these parts of, of yoga are actually coming originally from Tantra, of wanting to awaken the chakras and awaken your kundalini and these kinds of things. Um, yeah, and, and any, um, any yoga that is working with the chakras, working with uh, fields of energy, working with moving that energy from one place to another, usually in a, in a, the context is lifting this energy upward. It's a Kundalini yoga because mm -hmm. it helps to activate Kundalini um, and is also a Tantric yoga, really. Mm -hmm. um, but again, the word Tantra is, uh, is a little bit ambiguous um, mm. if you try to just say t uh, Tantra yoga. So is the, tant the Tantra um, energy and Kundalini energy the same? Because when I think of Tantra, I'm thinking about combining masculine and feminine energies or divine masculine, divine feminine. When I think of Kundalini, I'm thinking more in terms of light, like a, a universal um non-gender associated type of energy but are they the same thing or are they different yeah that's a big subject because <laughs> um actually the way that shiva and shakti are represented in tantra is that they're actually um and um for all your listeners shiva is generally depicted as, as <clears throat> the divine male and shakti is depicted as a divine female but uh, Shiva is actually if we use um, an, a non-gendered um, word for it we would say the unmanifested so the emptiness that we hear from Buddhism that aspect of uh, that which is beyond all manifestations so the the manifestation in potential yes but completely unmanifested there isn't a gender there it's consciousness itself it's that which is beyond the mind whenever, and we can step into this when we meditate deeply or when we see a sunset, we might have a glimpse of this. Mm -hmm. But then the other side of it, which is which is considered to be the, the feminine, the divine feminine, is the manifestation itself, which contains the man and the woman, or it contains everything that can be thought of, has been thought of, or could be possibly thought of. Um, so this includes our body, our energy, our mind, and um, also esoteric aspects as well, like um, um, 
I don't know, spirits and guides and all of these things as well. So then if we compare that to Kundalini, Kundalini is said to be that divine uh, feminine, known also sometimes as Kundalini Shakti, in fact. And it's the divine feminine manifesting in the body as this like primal force of energy uh, of, of, um, of intended consciousness, we could say, which moves through the body. And it's generally felt um, to be in the spine. But actually, it's um, experientially, it's everywhere. It's in every cell of the body. If we feel it only in the spine, we're missing a big point. It's... Um, Every cell, every molecule, it's a good place to start. And then when that rises, that is Shakti and it, uh, Shakti merges with Shiva. The manifest merges with the unmanifest. And then that brings ultimate, the ultimate, the (laughs) spiritual enlightenment. Wow. That's what I want. I want a spiritual enlightenment. I just want my mind to be blown, go into the divine and that's it. Yeah, that's that's interesting because we we expect in these in these places when we um, move towards this or when we have this, we expect fireworks. Mm. We expect there to be uh, I don't know, like um, I don't know, electrifying and like maybe something like the only thing we can compare it to is maybe. Uh, during sex, during orgasm. Mm-hmm. But it's actually just, it's real. like a lot of people miss it. A lot of people miss the, miss the aspect of the peacefulness of it. Uh, in that orgasm, there's a place, which is why we go back to it again and again as, as um, animals and mammals and all the rest. We go back to it again and again because there is that place of peacefulness within within that orgasm if you take away all of the fireworks and all of the the pleasure in the body there's a peacefulness in that place and this is what this is more related to the to the uh, spiritual enlightenment there's an emptiness um, not is it not only is it more related to it but it's more fulfilling mm-hmm. it's just as Baidav said, as kind of animals or, you know, pleasure-seeking beings, we get fixated on that eruption, that explosion, that initial bliss, and we miss the, the lasting peace that is quietly resting behind, within, and all around that moment. And it's the consistent seeking of another high and another high and going after this... Uh, dream of something big and yeah the big band is going to be there and you know the horns will play and the angels will come down uh that causes us to miss what's right in front of us Mm -hmm. and it's it's always there too Mm -hmm. that moment we can we can have it happen through kundalini rising and in a, a unification between the manifest and the unmanifest but it's also just waiting for us to to realize to to come to open up to um, in every, and that's Tantra, right? In every moment, in everything we're doing, as we have our morning coffee, as I said, we can have that moment. Hmm. 
I've only had that moment once. Now it's during like a a near death experience where mm-hmm. I was like in this place where it was really peaceful and nice. And like and I kind of was vis- the way I visualize some of this is like that 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 piece is like at the center of a wheel. You know, it's like the axle. And then that explosion is everything coming out from that center point, you know, which is a kind of like what we experience as an orgasm, because it's almost like that, that calmness also has a desire to have mm. experience. Mm. Yeah, it's the relationship between Shiva and Shakti. Shiva is the unmanifest, as Baidav said, and Shakti is the manifest, or what I like to say is Shiva is the consciousness and Shakti is the power of consciousness. And if we want to use gender, she comes into form and creates, she creates all of the beauty uh, with, with this unified, you know, experience with him. So the wheel that we can just be distracted by the external moving of the wheel and the ability of the wheel to tow our, you know, basket of rocks or whatever it might be mm-hmm. but in the center we're, we're missing that really beautiful part as well and I think that that's why so many traditions eliminate or vilify Shakti uh, they might not call it Shakti but they call it the earth they call it sin they call it uh, the mind or Maya and try to just totally eliminate this aspect so that we can try to see that part that we're all missing uh, while Tantra is trying to to bring them together to see them both at the same time and realizes or points towards the fact that, yes, the center of the wheel is important. Yes, we're all missing it. Yes, it's in every moment, uh, but we can't have the center of the wheel without also the external beauty as well. Yeah. It sounds very similar to the teachings of Nagarjuna in the middle way. Hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, yeah. And and really, you know, all of the traditions point to the same thing. It's true. You know, yeah. when when the when the wise rishis and the the saints when they have that vision, the, the vision is very similar. Um however, in some traditions like in a Christian context, they were unable to express that. They were unable to express it in a way, because they also um, didn't want to uh, create um, dissension in the church. And if you if you read uh, the uh, teachings of Meister Eckhart, he comes very close to this, but mm. but they couldn't get rid of him because he was high in the church, but he was a saint and a mystic. And um, not that they wanted to get rid of him because his writings were very were very valid, but um, he was so high in the church that he had to be, rec- his teachings had to be recognized. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, the only person, I mean, I'm not familiar with him, but I'm more familiar with, like, Thomas Merton and some of his teachings, which are also, yes. you know, he, he, he incorporated a lot of the, the mystical and Eastern philosophies into some of his more Christian Abrahamic religious beliefs. Um, so when you have, like, what is your actual ashram and school about? Tell me a little bit about that. Like how, how, you know, what kind of students are you attracting? You know, what kind of practices are you giving them? And, and 
you know, how, how, how's it all working out? Um, I think our school, I, I, in some ways, our kind of mission, if we were to say that we have a mission or our purpose is to try to rectify in some, in, in some small way this misunderstanding about Tantra. Um, and because if, if you Google Tantra, it's going to be very hard for you to find actual teachings on Tantra. It's usually, like you say, about the orgasm and sex and also some really strong um, gender essentialism around there needing to be a man and a female and uh, coming into our pure divine nature based on our bodies. But this is a misunderstanding in the teaching as well that can also be quite harmful so, uh, like I say, if we were to have a mission, it is to, to bring traditional Tantra, uh, back in, or not maybe back, but into the West and to, to, to also with that bring it in a digestible way for Westerners. So there's kind of levels to our school in, in how far one wants to go into the world of Tantra and the, you know, the initial, Courses and programs are quite digestible with just a, a sprinkle of, of the tradition and also keeping things very open for people to explore what feels comfortable for them and what they are interested in. And then from there, we go, you can go deeper and deeper into the tradition and into the practices and the rituals and the puja. You can receive mantra initiation um, and uh, start to actually work in a very deep and powerful and real way with your own kundalini energy uh, versus it being, you know, also uh, in the world of Tantra, kundalini has also been kind of uh, misrepresented as well. And there's a lot of stuff around rainbow colors and uh, I don't know, it gets, it's, it's also diluted into something that isn't true to what it originally was or is. And so um, that's also a part of our mission as well, to give people real, deep, strong, authentic practices um, from our teacher, from our lineage uh, that can actually be beneficial, not just for spiritual awakening as well, not just for this transcendental experience, but also just to help someone with their health, to help someone with the passing of, of a family member, to help uh, manifest the perfect partner. All of these kinds of things are also included in the world of Tantra. So you don't have to just be interested in in transcendence and in spiritual awakening and embodied divine being. It can also be that you just want to find that perfect job. And we've got a mantra for that as well. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question. Hmm. It's our school. How do I manifest a perfect person, uh, perfect <laughs> me? Because I, I, I'm... I'm single. Yeah. <laughs> well, you would get initiated into mantra. So this would mean that um, you would be, we unfortunately, in order to be actually initiated into mantra, we have to be physically together. So we come together and then we place this mantra or Bhairav really places this mantra inside of you. Uh, and then you've been kind of initiated into the lineage. And from there, we can start giving you very specific mantras for you and your life and what you want to manifest and practices. Um, Tantra is also working with um, Ayurveda. Uh, so sometimes there can be maybe specific herbs 
that we can use to help manifest things. There are We're working with Jyotish, so uh, Vedic astrology. So there might be particular evenings that it'll be strongest for you to, to chant this mantra, to manifest your partner. And, it, you know, when, when we're working with mantra and tantra in this way, it's really quite amazing. It's like a, a little spell or maybe even like a specific medication where uh, we'll say that, you know, you have to chant this mantra for this long on this many days. It'll be most powerful when the moon is out, wear this color, face this direction. And this way we generate a particular energy inside of ourselves that then attracts uh, or repels whatever it is that we're trying to to bring or remove from our life. Yeah. Sounds like the occult. It sounds yeah, like the works of like Henry Cornelius Agrippa. Yeah, yeah, we could say that. You know, our our um, tantric master in India, he's um, he's like a legend. You know, he's it's a mad scientist. He's a mad scientist. He's always, you know, you'll see him. He'll come out in the morning and he'll be he'll be um, melting different steels together in order to make some kind of. He was working um, a couple of years ago on a superconductor, something that he had learned in his meditations from the astral, and he was bringing it in to um, to help India mm-hmm. um, develop the superconductor. So he's like he's he's got a lot a lot to share, and um, yeah, he he is always tweaking things a little bit to see like what kind of different energy can I do if in the fire ceremony I offer um, turmeric root instead of, say, rice. And this isn't coming from his mind either. Mm-hmm. It's something that he, he's divinely connected to in, in an incredible way. Um, so many times we've been doing puja, so, so ritual with him, and wild things have happened, like a sudden extreme change in the weather or... Uh, animals have come and gathered around us or uh, just very like the animals that are traditionally yeah. uh, traditionally um, uh, representing that deity that we're working with right. and they come around like a certain kind of bird or or I've seen after a ritual uh, walking out seeing the the clouds in a circle around the ashram in India mm-hmm. Wow, that's incredible. Very yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Who is he? His name is Guruji Maharaj. He's a very unknown uh, guru in India. Um, and, and he's in the Shivoham Tantra tradition. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, he um, has an amazing story. He has an, an amazing story. At the age of 14, you know, he was, his family always thought he was a little bit weird, maybe... Um, just different. Mm-hmm. He was silent. He didn't like to play. And at the age of 14, he left home. And um, he had the first vision of his of his guru at this time. And his guru told him he needed to go to such and such a place to start to receive teachings. Mm-hmm. And so then he was traveling for, he was um, uh, like a, a sadhu, which is kind of a traveling um, mendicant, like a traveling uh, monk for 35 years. So he didn't settle down for that long. Um, he lived he, in the Himalayas. Yeah. He, at some point he had a bicycle and he would bicycle from pilgrimage place to pilgrimage place and from teacher to teacher. He, 
He uh, has had over 64 uh, gurus in the physical. So he has this astral uh, guru who guides him, but he still needed to receive teachings, mantra initiation from 64 uh, different um, gurus in his life in a physical form. And that's very telling of, of Tantra that like we, we need, it's not enough to, to just have these things in the astral, that we need these things implanted physically as well. Mm-hmm. And at some point, his body was suffering a lot because he was doing so much practice, like 12 hours, 14 hours of um, seated meditation without a break, without movement and all the rest. And his astral teacher told him that he needed to start to um, to live the life as a householder. And this is also very telling in Tantra. Also in, in Buddhist Tantra of Tibet, people will spend their lives as monks. Now, not all, all of the lineages are like this, but some of them are like this. They'll spend their lives as monks for 10, 15, 20 years, and they'll live in caves. They'll live in, in very kind of ascetic type circumstances. And then their master will tell them, okay, now... Now go have a family. Now live the, that other side of life. Live that other side of life so that, so that you know what it's like to have offspring, to go through the trials and tribulations of, of, um, of most, most people on this planet and um, to learn how to integrate these teachings completely. So um, at this point, uh, Guruji, um, Guruji eventually got married. He has a child. He lives um, the life of a householder to some degree. He's still doing fire ceremony, yagna for hours every day uh, and all the rest. And he's guiding people as well. And he's very present on the ashram land. Um, so very wonderful master. Wow. You know, I've been reading a book about um, extended extended masters most of them in india and how they you know there's like this one i guess it was like a main guru and then it goes down to all the rishis and other gurus and and you know how they travel around and i've also read you know like um what is it uh autobiography of a yogi yogananda awesome book about like guys who can you know levitate and do all these things but even though he, he does point out that those are only side effects of the actual spiritual energy and practices that they're doing. So um, when you're practicing, are, are you, do you acknowledge some of the side effects and, um, and what's actually happening? That's a great question, really. Um, we, I think for the most part, we both try to teach that we don't want to become too distracted by these things. Uh, and they don't have to manifest for everybody either. Uh, for some of us, it may manifest in a very strong way uh, that's undeniable and that even others can see. And for others, nothing very big will ever really happen. But that doesn't mean that it's less, you know, because it's not manifesting in the, that firework way. Uh, it, yeah, it doesn't mean that it's, it's any less of a practice or that the practice is not working for us or something like this. So the, for the most part, we, we say that these things are 
are fantastical to to talk about and to discuss and to ponder. But like you say, they're they're a side effect, mm-hmm. and and we don't want to become distracted by them because it's so easy to to become obsessed with the sensation of kundalini in your body or the ecstatic thoughts or feelings or whatever that might come from kundalini rising and then totally forget that we're actually hoping to merge this this energy with shiva uh, and then we instead kind of by keeping ourselves focused on the sensations and the feelings and the thoughts and the opening of our ajna and the purple colors or whatever it might be then we 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 stop ourselves and we get stuck there and we become obsessed with this experience and we forget about transcending the experience as well. Guruji as well, as well once once said to a friend and I, I think we were maybe asking about it and he said, he said, for you, no cities will come. These are these kind of like levitation and these things because you're meant for the spiritual. Mm. You know, so, so for for so many of these masters, they have these things, but um, they don't get distracted. That's how they become became the spiritual master that we know spiritual masters that we know them as. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're completely possible, and uh, they they do come eventually, you know. And it's kind of like um, these cities are kind of seen as just kind of a natural play. Uh, like, um, like, like us with technology, you know, if we, if we had this technology of even a flashlight 500 years ago, and we flashed it around, we, people might think of us as a, as a God, you know, they might try to see us as some, some leader of some sort, but they just, we just know the technology to create a flashlight. And the same thing goes with with these these cities or these these different phenomena that happen, it's just kind of we know ourselves more, so therefore we know nature more, and we can play with nature easier. We can play with with anti gravitation if that's if that's uh, what dawns on us or if that's what we want to manifest. Um, but masters always tell us not to get distracted by this. Even even Buddha, he said time and time again, don't be distracted by the bliss, because bliss is another one of these things mm-hmm. that uh, can distract us. Now, we also shouldn't be afraid of it either, but know that it's like it's something we can move beyond, not to be obsessed by it, because we suffer a lot. Whenever we get obsessed by these things, if we think that our meditations are always supposed to feel in such and such a way, then then we like yeah we just suffer from that because we might not be able to reach that or get into that again and again but we might even be going beyond that um yeah i mean i would like to achieve bilocation that way i can be at work and at home at the same time (laughs) (laughs) i haven't been successful at also though with bilocation what i find interesting too is i mean you know, even 20 or 30 years ago, it would have been considered something impossible. But now with the knowledge that we have with quantum physics and the idea that a particle can actually exist 
in two places at the same time, we're like, oh, like maybe this is possible. Um, did you ever like it, like look into that kind of stuff? Because I think that's really interesting. Like some of the things that these guys have been doing three, four thousand years ago, and has been dismissed by you know, especially like Western thought and Western science and Western philosophy, now is coming back in through science again. And people are like, oh, I, I guess this stuff might be possible because of, of, of all the quantum entanglement kind of stuff. Even if you if you don't get into quantum uh, physics and all this, you're existing here in our living room, but you also exist <laughs> in New Jersey. In New Jersey, <laughs> and it's being recorded, so you're going to exist. Yeah, right. I don't know. However many times people hear this podcast, right? And at the same time, I really don't exist. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because there really is no me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys sort of go by that philosophy, but, you know, it, it, in the end, there really is no me. There's just some kind of source. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, well, again, going back to Tantra, we embrace both. And in some ways, at least the way that we teach it is that that's, Initially, we have to say that there is no mind, there is no body, there's only, there's only source, there's only Shiva consciousness, there's only the ultimate. And as Bhairav said, you know, we metaphorically or actually go up the mountain into our cave and we retreat away from the world and we, we turn our senses in and we try to connect with that which we ultimately are. And then once we're established there and realized then we learn to bring that back and say, ah, but, you know, the, per the mind and the body do also exist. Mm -hmm. they, they are a part of me. They're not all that I am, though. And in, it's in believing that that's all that I am that the suffering actually comes. So we, we need to see both eventually. But for a time, it can be helpful to say, I'm not the mind, I'm not the body, and just turn towards the center of the wheel. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of use both too. Like, like if I get too upset or, or like if I'm in a situation, you know, that I don't know where I'm starting to where I'm starting to judge actually. Like when I start to get judgmental, then I have to kind of remind myself like, well, all this is a manifestation of the source, so I really can't judge this situation. I'm just looking at it through a small lens that I have access to. Yes, that's a wonderful practice. Mm -hmm. I wish more of the world could take on. It's difficult, though. I mean, it's difficult to keep that state of mind. I, I can't maintain that all the time. Yes. Um, you know, I'm lucky if I use it once or twice a day. Yeah, and, you know, I think, again, that's another beautiful thing about Tantra is they're saying that you don't need to maintain that all the time uh, and that it's it's almost uh, impossible or, or just unrealistic to say that you should be... Uh, forever in this higher mind, higher state of being where you are uh, never knowing yourself also as person and having that human experience. Uh, one of my teachers has this beautiful saying where she says that you are, you are the individual wave, but you are also the ocean. Uh, and so mm -hmm. it's just this subtle way of pointing towards the fact that we're always oscillating between being an individual and being this unified consciousness. 
and to just stay as one is is not possible. It's not natural. Where life is always flowing, ebbing and flowing. Uh, from the unmanifest to the manifest and back again. And so that is our own experience as well. Uh, and suffering can come from trying to just be one of these things. Yeah, I mean, I tend to find it a little frustrating myself. So <laughs> I guess it is causing suffering for me. Yeah, us too. <laughs> yeah, and like really with the practices of traditional Tantra, at least that that I've come across, when Kundalini is is real and palpable and strong, we naturally, when our pre, when our practice is strong as well, uh, we'll naturally be more anchored in that place of consciousness. Mm-hmm. We'll naturally um, be able to rest there easier without maybe trying to remember, yes. like, oh, I. I need to remember that I am part of I the am, source. That I am part of the source. I am the infinite. That I am this and that. But it's not a remembering. It's a knowing, mm-hmm. rather. Yes. And being able to really step into that and and um, and feel that. But it's not a matter of remembering, because like, we, like it or not, we are that. So how can we not remember that mm-hmm. as well? If we are that, why are we having this experience? Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, journey. I think like again, I can only perceive it through through tantric uh, philosophy, but it it seems that it's it's a journey that has to happen where we forget ourselves for a while. Uh, we for, not. And that, yes, like we, we forget ourselves as both the unmanifest and the manifest, as the entire universe, as consciousness, as well as the power of consciousness, as Shiva and Shakti. And we get, like you say, kind of looking through this little tiny hole and thinking that we're just the person, just the mind, that we have things to achieve and people to see and lists to check off. And uh, we forget about and I think we're conditioned to forget in some ways through our culture, through our upbringing, that there is this bigger part of ourselves. I mean, when we look at Guruji's son, I feel like he's being raised in such a way to not forget. Yes, you are Sharab, the individual, you know, young Indian boy in India who likes cars and running around, but you are also the divine. And that also is what we we tend to forget or have conditioned out of us and for many of us have to go back towards um, in order to live on this in in this world and in this life in a place of vitality and beauty and appreciation uh, we have to to taste both fully not just that tiny little peekable hole of yeah individualism mm-hmm. and uh you know, we're we're so attracted by by activity. Mm-hmm. We're attracted to, and maybe also distracted by um, all the all the outward activity, and um, we we just don't look inside. You know, at at the the very moment that the, the moment of consciousness at the at the source behind it, you know, and, um, yeah, yeah, we're, 
we're conditioned. We're conditioned to like the fantastic, to like the um, the flashiness of everything, rather than being attracted to. And really, I I feel like this is part of a spiritual path to be to become attracted, more attracted to the silence which is within, to be more attracted to to the peacefulness, to the to the, the very source where everything resides around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there a difference between tantric sex and sex magic? Like, like, like what Aleister Crowley was doing, like where he was using, you know, Basically, you know, the, the act of sex to raise up a whole bunch of energy and then you kind of like create a sigil or something like that. You try to shoot it out into the universe at the moment of orgasm so it'll return and manifest itself back here in your own life. Um, yes and no. Aleister Crowley was you know, doing things that were questionable, to say the least. You know, his three wives became insane because um, he was probably sucking energy from them, like vampirizing the energy for his own benefit and ma um, manifestation. Um, so that's something we do not see in Tantra. Yeah, that's something we do, we do not see in Tantra. Um, now... He might have learned it from some people in India. Mm -hmm. And um, the interesting thing with Tantra is that it's not a system of um, morals and ethics. We need, to, uh, learn, we need to learn about our own morals and ethics from our own culture. Like we are brought up with certain morals and ethics, like we shouldn't steal from people. And we all know that we shouldn't... Um, kill other humans and we all know that and then some people say we sh also shouldn't kill animals and so we have our own morals and ethics and um and india had enough morals and ethics coming from patanjali and from the hindu culture there is an understanding as well of karma in india that it will just come back to you yeah. so why take advantage of somebody else when it's just going to come back to you eventually and so so um because Tantra isn't a system of right and wrong, of right and wrong um, certain practices came about that um, could be seen also from our standpoint as wrong. Um, or, or this energy, this spiritual energy that we, can, that we can build, we can use that for whatever purpose we want. We could use it, we could use that Shakti energy to make a lot of money or to go towards the spiritual. Um, there isn't a, uh, <clears throat> like, um, oh, you shouldn't do this or something. However, there is the law of karma. So if we're using that Shakti energy that we built and we're putting it towards money, it will, it, it will, chances are, it will lead us further from truth rather than closer to truth. And so there will be a karmic effect of that, that we will want more and more and more money. The, the desires we have today, um, foretell what our future is really um so if we have that desire then it will move towards it so so 
these things might have been developed in Tantra. I don't know. I haven't heard this anywhere else. I haven't read, read books or anything else um, which states that Aleister Cowley did in, indeed receive these from India. He states he has um, th- this uh, sexual magic. I haven't seen it, but it's, it's possible. Now, now in India, there's also um, black tantrics as well as white tantrics. There's tantrics which um, which are learning operate. to harness the power for negative. Yeah, they harness the power for negative things. For from like um, somebody will come with them and they they want injury to another. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and this is uh, as well what gave India or Tantra a bad name also in India. Now, not all over India, I won't say that, because there are some states like Tamil Nadu that they still practice a traditional form of Tantra, and it's also very um, very much more like a white magic to connect us with divine energies and to rid us of more of ego. Um, but those other things, unfortunately, seem to be there, although... Um, Maybe it's my own karma. I I haven't um, ever read these books or looked at these ancient texts where it says these things. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I I have read his books and I've actually interviewed uh, Lana Milo Duquette, who took over Crowley's organization. I guess like he's not the first person. He didn't, he didn't know Crowley or anything, but anyway. It's it's interesting the different perspectives on it, um, you know. When I think like one of the things I've heard though about India is that there are a lot of um, these gurus doing sort of like uh, not you know sort of like black black not black magic but it's just you know materialism. They're 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 out to help people manifest materialistic th- desires rather than having their their spiritual um, you know the higher good of the of the of the people in mind rather than you know anything else so so in your trip to India have you encountered a lot of these type of gurus there oh they're there they're there I think yeah. we just know not to pay much attention to them mm-hmm the the it's pretty like you say it's pretty it's it, it's easy to just say that you're a guru and start kind of preying on these westerners with their money and mm-hmm. their their desire for uh even not necessarily you know enlightenment but maybe just something to levitate or whatever it might be and yeah unfortunately it's a very common thing to to see uh people misusing their their power and the trust of others working with tantra we can build a lot of i mean this isn't exclusive to tantra we see this in many different traditions and paths that teachers are abusing the power that they've been given um and i'm going to speak specifically to tantra but in tantra we build a lot of power we build a lot of shakti and with that, we have a lot of power in the physical world, in the manifest, and that can be intoxicating to very easily then slip into using it in negative ways, in ways that are not for the benefit of all. And I think that um, it's really important to 
to have a teacher, you know, the, if, if that guru doesn't really have a guru, that in itself is something to question for myself. Uh, if they haven't actually been empowered by their teacher to give these teachings, to do these things, uh, because, because then they're an individual that's playing with uh, the, their, yeah, the lives of others, really. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And eventually that karma just comes back to them mm-hmm. for misleading um, others. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy to, mm-hmm. to find an actual spiritual tradition and an actual spiritual share. <laughs> it's like you have to really you know, wade through the muddy waters of the swamp. And um, yeah, that includes going and getting the wrong teacher sometimes, which we ourselves have been through that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and really, like, there's a saying in India amongst some certain Indians that I've met: if you want to be rich, then uh, become a become a guru, because right. you know, with a little bit of charisma and a long beard and dressing in orange or in some kind of thing that's different in some robes, the foreign people. They don't know, you yeah. know. All of the Western people, they don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, know. I mean, yeah. I would just walk up to any guy with a a beard and, and some face paint and be like, <laughs> "What's going on, man?" <laughs> you know? um, with the tantra that that you're teaching, especially like like the sexual part, is the sexual part exclusive to man and wife, um, or is there group events? Oh. <laughs> I have to ask. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> uh, that we teach, uh, yeah, we don't teach uh, group events, um, <laughs> orgies. You know, we, we hardly even talk about the sexual aspect of Tantra because we don't want people to come to our ashram with this intention. Mm-hmm. It's you actually know. something we tend to keep for our... This, I spoke about how earlier about how in our school, there's these layers and levels to our school and um, sexuality and and sex in Tantra is something that we tend to keep for those students who have shown a certain degree of dedication and interest in Tantra beyond just the sex. And once that is kind of been demonstrated through their dedication to their sadhana, to their spiritual practice, to their interest in, in the teachings, for their uh, their longing for the divine, then if they inquire, then we might provide some teachings around tantric sex. But um, for the most part, we, we try not to, because as I said, our mission is really to rectify the, the Western understanding of tantra and remove this emphasis on sex. And, and you know, our guru is teaching that really for uh, for sexuality to have its place, it has to be done only through marriage, really. Hmm. Uh, because then the, the energies of... of um, or yeah, dedicated partners. Or dedicated partners, the energies of Shiva and Shakti are united. Um, and uh, we can gain benefit from that. So we're a married couple and... What Artemis has reached through her practice, I benefit. And then what I've reached through my practice, Artemis benefits. But um, if we're if there's multiple partners, then energy gets dispersed 
that energy isn't contained. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's really a shame because we might, we might work a lot and, and build some power, but then it's dispersed if it's a polyamorous, uh, type, um, situation. Um, yeah. Is the sex better? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, because it's not just physical, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, especially when working with Tantra again, there's a, a depth and an intimacy and an ability like to truly experience the the bliss and the, the the sanctity of of sexuality, we have to be able to surrender to a certain degree, to uh, to let go of all of our personal self, our our personal restrictions, our our you know individual ways that we hold ourselves in our mind and our our uh, understanding of ourselves together. And that needs to just totally be able to dismantle uh, to a point that, you know, you, you're, you lose yourself and you truly have to have a deep intimacy and trust and uh, yet connection in order to reach that place with another. Um, and it has to be done in an equal way. Uh, it's not it's not such a uh, you know one person's doing it and not the other and this kind of thing so we are it, together we're we're dismantling the individual to come to that cosmic self hmm. yeah does, does the sex last for like hours and hours and hours it can yeah that's yeah. awesome mm-hmm. I got I gotta, I gotta find somebody we'll come to the ashram we'll initiate you in mantra and we'll get you going on a sadhana for love manifest (laughs) partner yeah (laughs) my my fear is i'm just getting too old though like i was watching one of your 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 yoga videos on um i think it was on facebook or youtube this morning and i was just trying to stand on one leg and i kept falling over yeah i mean the physical practice of asana is is a, again a small aspect it, it it doesn't have to be for every body and every being uh, there are many different ways that we can come to tantra and yoga and never have to to put ourselves into a pretzel position it, it's not necessary well, it wasn't even at- close to a pretzel you were just standing yeah. on one leg and i'm like yeah i have no yeah. bounds i'm like heck with this i'll just like sit on a meditation meditation cushion yeah yeah really though that if in in yoga we see all kinds of yogis yogis who come to this union through 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 music through dance through meditation through through yoga like asana through through mantra through fire ceremonies so it's really and that's kind of also what we try to teach to because in in the world of Tantra, there's all these misunderstandings. And also in the world of yoga, there's many misunderstandings that you have to be flexible, that you have to be able to stand on one leg, whatever it might be. But yoga is so much more than the physical practice. Uh, there's a lot that we can be doing in order to come to a state of yoga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and 
That seems to be yeah. a big thing here in the United States. It's just the physical part. Yeah. yeah. And and there's really um, a yoga for each person. Yeah. So somebody who might be more intellectually minded, one who's physically minded. So the, the asana, one who's more heart uh, felt and devotional, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, one who enjoys the occult and the mystic and all of this mm-hmm. so there's there's something for everyone and um and it's it's amazing it's not like uh, you have to follow this path or you can't be part of it you know um yeah so it's it's a it's a very beautiful practice awesome. that being said as well like if if one wants to be able to stand on one leg and at this time they can't. That's also an important part for us in our school is teaching asana that's accessible to all bodies. So we're not starting with the pretzel and expecting everyone to get there, but we're, we're finding ways to modify postures and adapt things for each person. It's amazing watching how someone who comes initially to the ashram can't sit on the ground at all, can't sit on their, you know, can't touch their toes or whatever. And in time, if, if that's what they want, this is something we can work on together to to bring more flexibility, mobility into the body. And with this also, we start to, of course, work with energy and then the movement of energy through the physical body as, as prana and in the nadis and, and so on. So it's it's not like if you can't do it now, you're never going to be able to do it as well. Hmm. Earlier in the interview, you, you, you talked about, you know, people being... Um, you know, consumed by the chakras and the rainbow colors and things like that. Now, I, I do um, like a regular chakra meditation, maybe like once a day, where you know I'll sit and I'll meditate and I'll you know focus on each chakra. Um, to just you know, you know, because you say it gets the the energy moving, and I do feel different afterwards. Um, is that a valid practice, or is that something? Is that something that people should be doing or is that just uh, a bunch of uh, mystical mumbo jumbo that doesn't work? I don't want to say that it doesn't work because, you know, focusing on our breath, we can still experience a lot. Focusing on our left big toe, we can still experience a lot. And if for some, this is the only way that they've been given so far to be able to connect with the chakras, then, then do it especially if you feel better afterwards and it, it, cha- it has a shift in your consciousness. Uh, the, the thing is for us and the thing that we're hoping to share with more and more people is that we can actually connect with the chakras in a much more deep and powerful way than, than just simply a visualization or um, yeah, by using traditional practices uh, and mantras and, and so on. What are some yeah. of those ways? Uh, well, well, through using mantra and, um, and going deeper, um, we start to connect with the, um, with the, uh, deities of those chakras. And then, um, we can actually, um, start to manifest, uh, certain qualities of those deities, of those, um, very high beings, uh, in our own body and, um, in the balancing. And, um, and really once the chakras start to, um, start to be more open, it allows uh, an opening for Kundalini to become strong and to, uh, and to lift. 
So really in our, in our tradition, um, we're working with the chakras to purify them. And then once they're purified, then we start to work on, on building Shakti, on building, on strengthening and building Kundalini. And then, um, once Kundalini is strong and active and, and in this regard, we also need to, to have a strong practice. Then we uh, start to work with um, with Shiva, with lifting that Kundalini into um, into Ajna and then beyond. So really, there's a multitude of practices that could be given to you or to any individual to help start building your your Kundalini, to connecting with your chakras, to purifying and strengthening them. But I think an important point here that we haven't quite brought up yet is. Uh, you sitting alone, trying to uh, strengthen your own, purify your own kundalini, your own chakras, is kind of like you sitting with two sticks and trying to start a fire. It's possible. You can do it. Uh, it's just going to require a lot more effort and, and 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 enthusiasm and strength. Perseverance. Yeah, to but, get but that all, fire. Going. Me is all I got right now. <laughs> right. Yes, of course. And but but then if you're able to actually come to 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 be with like Bhairav or to meet Guruji or any of the other teachers in our in our lineage of the Shiva home tradition I believe there are some in the United States as well uh, there it's like as though they already have a fire going and they just pass you a stick that's already on fire mm-hmm. so you know that's a very fast way to start a fire and to get Kundalini going versus you by yourself with your two, two sticks it's possible it will happen eventually if you're persistent as Bhairav says but there has to be something said as well for actually just having someone pass you a stick that's on fire. So how would I find that person that has the fire? I mean, I, it's not like I can just travel to Canada because I'm basically here. I'm a slave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are, there are practices that we can give you online uh, for sure. There's just a, also a depth that can come when, when actually being able to be initiated mm-hmm. into the practice. And like I said, I think there are people in the United States, maybe uh, from time to time, so we have other teachers in the Shiva home tradition that travel to the United States. Um, there are a lot in Europe. Um, and then, yeah, but of course, if you can't travel at this time, then it, this is something that maybe it's good to just keep in the back of your mind. Hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, keep like, it. Like, like during COVID, nobody could travel. Yes. Yeah. 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 Keep in the back of your mind that you want to, and it doesn't need to be an obsession or something. You don't need to go out, um, I don't know, searching or something, but keep in the back of your mind that that you want to meet a teacher. Mm -hmm. You want to meet somebody who's authentic, that will show you truth. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the universe wants us to reach truth. This is why we're given so many trials and tribulations in our lives. And we'll be we'll be placed in uh, it, it's grace after all in meeting a teacher who uh, who speaks to us and who who we feel can hold us mm-hmm. really it's a it's a grace so we can't we can't do this with the mind we could go to India and meet lots of teachers but they might not be the one that can really hold us and some people um, have the karma that they. They don't meet their teacher mm-hmm. in this life, yet they yearn for it. So it's a sincere yearning and intention to to just request it, you know, from your own heart. And it can it can be left at that. And then 
we'll see what the we can only see what the universe unfolds because New Jersey, New York, this whole area, it's a huge place. There's so many people. And there's there's bound to be some teachers who can teach truth. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been lucky as far as like Buddhist teachers, you know? Um, yeah. You know, I had a really good Buddhist teacher. She passed away. Um, you know, I had a Kundalini teacher who also passed away. Um, I've been able to see the Dalai Lama in New York, which was, was pretty cool. And then I moved to Alabama. In Alabama, this oddly enough, in Alabama, they consider yoga satanic. It's devil worship. And, and that was just so restrictive and harsh. I'm so glad to be out of there. Okay. But I had no idea that there was places in the United States where, yeah. where something like yoga was considered devil worship. Wow. Uh, yeah. It, Incredible. It's, yeah. It, it, it's absolutely bizarre. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I know, it just didn't make sense. I was shocked by it. You know? Um, so before we wrap this up, and, and since we're talking about spiritual teachers and finding people and finding things, where is the best place for my listeners to find you guys and to get your book and to learn some of your teachings? Um, really, are probably our website, um, anatara.org, A-N-U-T-T-A-R-A.org. Um, and on there, we have quite a few free courses. Um, you can get our, our book as well, access to our podcast, Um and information about coming to the ashram, even just booking a cabin to come stay. Uh, it's all the possibilities are, are really on that website. That's awesome. I guess people are allowed to travel now too, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's opening back up and it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to hope that during this time of, of, of seclusion that it's, I have this feeling that people got to really align with themselves of what is important whether that be community or nature or spirituality and uh, i just hope that people remember that as the world opens back up and they don't get so distracted again by the movies and malls and pizza or whatever it might be and they remember like ah what was it that my heart truly yearned for when i was uh in lockdown and and how can i make sure that I, I keep that as an important part of my life and, and don't fall back asleep, really. Mm-hmm. Our, uh, our guru said, uh, we asked about it, and he didn't want to talk much about COVID at all, but we asked about it, and he said, before COVID, um, the, the world was a, mess. was a mess, and now it's better. Now it's getting better. Now it's getting better. <laughs> so he has a different perspective on it as he always does with these things that we see, we see as so terrible, so bad and all the rest. But um, hopefully a shift of consciousness has happened for many of us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so too. You know, I mean, I don't know if it's a result of COVID, but I mean, I just think that people are just starting to think differently now because they have been just so dissatisfied for so long. And once you, I mean, you know, when things hurt enough, you're going to look for, for a cure. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to get sick in order to seek out the medicine. Yeah. 
So I will put the link to your website into your book in the notes Thanks. of this episode so my listeners can contact you. Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you this morning. Uh, and we'll definitely have to do this again. I really enjoyed it. You guys are pretty cool. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you. And just hang on for one moment, and I'm just going to play the outro. Mm-hmm. Because remember, everything that looks at